everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. And I'm Maddie. And we're back again with you this week with another brand new episode. Yes, we are. Before we get started, I have some crime news. People can't see me shake my head, but okay. (laughs) So our case on Julius Jones, who I mentioned before was sitting on death row in Oklahoma. So I'll give you the good news first, Maddie. In a three to one decision, the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board recommended commuting his sentence to life imprisonment. So I think that would make him eligible for parole. I, I don't know if he served enough to get parole, but it would make him eligible for that. And that was one of the reasons he took, remember at the end, not only the death sentence he's there for, he was charged with another crime that he pled guilty to, even though he says he wasn't guilty because if his sentence got commuted, if he didn't plead guilty, then that would keep him from getting parole. Right. So that's the good news. Julius Jones has been on death row since 2002, about Mm. 19, close to 20 years, and he's currently 41 years old. Now this decision goes to the desk of Governor Kevin Stitt, who will make the final decision whether to grant it or not. But now the bad news, an execution date of November 18th, 2021 has been set. November 18th, I know, but that seems like... But remember the... I think the attorney general had asked for a couple execution dates for various prisoners, and he was one of them. Right. So they've said it. So the governor does not have long to make a decision. We will keep you updated. Of course, it's on the news, so you could also look that up, too. But we'll keep you updated. Yep. So we just want to take a moment and thank you all that have been reaching out to us with your kind words and case suggestions. We're slowly making our way through them, and we really appreciate it. So some special shout outs. I actually got an update to our barbecue murder case. Mm-hmm. I just noticed it today. So thank you, Matty 2121. So this is regarding, again, the barbecue murders. And remember, Chuck, we talked about, had been sitting in prison. He was trying to get parole. And he was granted it, even though the governor denied it. And then they overturned it. But I could not find anything else on it. Well, he got it. He's been paroled and he's living back in Terra Linda, California, and I believe acclimating well, at least according to Maddie 2121. So the other uh, shout outs we have is for Alumahati Confirmed which really love loving that name. I'm loving that name. <laughs> Says where their hands down favorite listen Ooh. and is now a lawyer listener. So thank you, Alumahati, confirmed. And for Caligian in Seattle, they reached out to us just to say they appreciated the Gerard Baden-Powell episode that we did out of Australia. Mm-hmm. As I was telling Maddie, is how my love of Australia 60 Minutes has now taken over. I scour YouTube. <laughs> Okay, so thank you all again that have been reaching out. If you would like to reach out to us, you can do so through our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our show notes and resources we use to bring you our episodes. Please keep in mind, these are just our notes and we are in no way professional journalists. No, not even a little bit. You can also message us through our Facebook page or our Instagram page at Criminal Disc Pod. And of course, our YouTube channel, which we still have going strong. Woo-hoo. People subscribe every week. Love it. Okay. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Okay. We are going to Memphis, Tennessee. That's where our story mainly takes place, which is located on the Mississippi River. Today, Memphis is the second largest city outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Now, it was originally home to the Chickasaw Native American tribe, but in the 16th century, French and Spanish explorers discovered the area which was not good for the Chickasaw tribe. By 1819, Memphis was founded by Andrew Jackson, James Winchester, and John Overton, who named the burgeoning city after a city from ancient Egypt, 
which was located on the Nile River. Famous citizens from Memphis include actor Morgan Freeman, love him, the iconic singer Aretha Franklin, singer-slash-actor Justin Timberlake, and actresses Kathy Bates, Lucy Hale, and Shannon Doherty, and the daughter of one of Memphis's most famous residents, Lisa Marie Presley. Of course. Mm-hmm. You ever been to Graceland? I've not, no. I've not either. Road trip. Ooh, maybe. Maybe we should go. We're planning our trip to Florida, and we're driving, so I'm trying to plan, like, fun spots to stop on the way. That would be one. Yeah. So before we get to Memphis, we're going to start out actually out in New Orleans, Louisiana, specifically in 1946, when George Howard, went by the nickname Buster, Hutt, was born to petty criminals. George was one of seven children. None of the children attended school due to his parents being drifters and slash criminals and always being on the move. So in 1947, George and his siblings would be abandoned by their parents in Tupelo, Mississippi, at a home of a family friend, and they would remain there for up to a year. So from what I read, again, mom and dad weren't the most upstanding citizens, Mm -hmm. and they just kind of dumped the kids with these family friends and took off. And the family friends just took up that responsibility. Seven kids? I'm not sure how closely they were watched, but eventually the parents came back around. And by the time George turned eight, he had been placed with his grandparents, actually, in North Carolina after his parents were both jailed on forgery charges. Hmm. So I think they came back around, picked all the kids up, but they moved from place to place to place to place and they weren't really formally educated at all. Right. So very hard, difficult life, especially for young children. So even with the stability of living with his grandparents, George mm, couldn't really seem to stay out of trouble. When he was 11 years old, George and his older brother Clifford were arrested after shooting out a neighbor's window after first stealing an air rifle. Fed up with their antics, along with the rest of George's siblings, their grandparents sent them off to a rural school for orphans run by a fundamentalist religious organization in Richmond, Virginia. You can imagine how well that went. (laughs) Once there, George was subject to harsh discipline for even the slightest infraction. Those fundamentalists don't joke around. Mm -mm. On two occasions, George and his brother Clifford ran away. And it was after their second attempt that they actually were expelled from the school and returned to the grandparents' home. I don't probably think the grandparents were too happy. However, George didn't stay there long and he was sent off to the Richmond Home for Boys. Now, while there, George did participate on the football team and it was during one of his games that he actually was knocked unconscious and was out for several minutes. Over the next several months after that incident, George would experience episodes of sleepwalking, blackout, and violent seizure episodes. And it was during some of these blackout episodes that George would often destroy school property and he would claim afterwards that he had no memory of doing so. One of his school counselors would note in his file that George was, quote, seriously disturbed, unquote. This already sounds like a recipe for success. I'm not sure how you would term success, but (laughs) hold that thought. George's violent incidents seemed to worsen the summer after his football injury. He was arrested that summer after attacking two young girls and forcing one of them to take off their clothes and perform a sex act on him. Now, while in juvenile detention for those charges, George was given a battery of psychological tests that would end up showing him to have a morbid preoccupation with blood and gore. It was due to these psychological exams that George was then to be transferred to a mental health institution. Good plan. Excellent plan. Not wanting to go to the mental institution, however, George escaped from the juvenile detentions in a really in his underwear set like he he wanted out of there he met up with his older brother Clifford and they both were on the run for several days before they were recaptured now upon his recapture he was sent to the mental health hospital where he was diagnosed with a psychopathic personality created by what one psychiatrist deemed an quote 
almost unbelievable physical and emotional deprivation, unquote. So that recipe you're talking about, it's not a good one. George once again escapes custody on December 21st, 1961, when he was 15 years old. It was during this escape that he abducted a 30-year-old Virginia woman at knife point. In the end, he robbed her of $35 and had sexually assaulted her. Now, a warrant was put out for his arrest, but by then he had fled Virginia and his plan was to go to Mexico, where he planned to hook up with his biological father. I never really read anything about his parents after they went to jail for forgery. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. Maybe his dad was in Mexico, but I'm not really sure I knew that. On January 13th, 1962, George again kidnapped a woman from Laredo, Texas at gunpoint and forced her to drive him out of town. The woman ended up deliberately crashing her car. Smart. Yes. Do what you got to do. Yeah. Do it the right way. But right. Yeah. And this resulted in George taking off on foot. So he's running from police. He's still eluding them. And he broke into an apartment of another woman two days later. And he threatened to kill her children if she did not cooperate. So after stealing that woman's car, he was spotted by police. And then he ended up crashing the stolen car and taking off on foot once again. The next day, George was taken into custody after he was seen leaving a local movie theater. Kind of anticlimactic after all the car <laughs> crashes, but... And then he's just like sauntering out of the movie theater with his bucket of popcorn. Yeah, and he was arrested. George would spend the next 13 months in the Webb County Jail and the Terrace School in Laredo, Texas. George was at the Terrace School for only eight months when he escaped again, but he was soon recaptured and sent to a more secure placement, the Hilltop School where he stayed until he was 18 years old. It's hard to believe that he's done all of this and he's he was only 15 at the time. What, 15, yeah, 15 16? 16, yeah. He wasn't very old. But again, look at kind of his role models and mm -hmm. upbringing. He had no structure, no positive role models. Take what you want. I want what I want when I want it kind of mentality. In June 1964, while still at Hilltop, George planned on kidnapping the school's librarian and using her car to escape. George's plan was found out and... Once again, he was transferred to another center and from there, a more maximum security juvenile lockup in Gatesville. So he just kept moving from more secure lockup to more secure lockup. In 1965, a progress report deemed George to be psychotic. And as one psychiatrist noted, quote, a psychopath capable of committing almost any crime, unquote. But that didn't seem to delay his release from Gatesville on his 21st birthday in 1967. So even though we have like, he's a sociopath, he's a psychopath, he's depraved. Sure. Let's release him back out in society. So upon his release, George returned to Tupelo, Mississippi, where his grandparents had moved to. George got a job as a hospital orderly, but it only lasted a few days before he was fired for stealing $100 from a nurse's purse. George was not charged with the theft as he had repaid all the money. George decided to leave Tupelo and move to New Orleans, where he was charged with theft soon after arriving, after he stole a checkbook from a room at the Roosevelt Hotel. In May 1967, George was picked up again after taking $46 from a register at a local cafe. So in the fall of 1967, George got married. He married Mary Bullimore from Mississippi, who happened to be one of his brother's pregnant ex-girlfriends that he'd only known for a few weeks. So pregnant with his brother's baby? It was never really clear. I assume the way I read it, it read that it was his brother's ex-girlfriend who was pregnant, and I assumed it was the brother's, but who knows? Okay. So during this marriage, it it wasn't a healthy one. Shocker. Shock. <laughs> right? So according to one article I read, George had insisted on six to eight bouts of intercourse each night from his wife, whom I'm like, well, was she still pregnant? I mean, that's a lot. But even in not being pregnant, that's still that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> Although he rarely reached a climax. 
So while in public, it's said that George would often erupt into fits of jealousy, resulting in violence whenever a man would talk to his wife. And this included her co-workers. So it's like, hey, how are you? And then he'd erupt if he would see that. George's violence didn't seem to wane as he got older. On October 16, 1968, when George was 22 years old, he was arrested again after forcing his way into a woman's car and beating her with his fists. Soon after, George moved on to Jackson, Mississippi with his brother Clifford and Clifford's wife. So while in Jackson, George is said to have tried to rape his mother-in-law on at least three occasions in early 1969. So this would be Mary's mom. Well, but what? Yeah. He's a sexual psychopath. Well, right, but like, I feel like after the first attempt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I get you. Because I was like, three? Really? Three And you stuck around? Yeah. Three? So now on April 27th, 1969, a socially prominent bachelor was also murdered in Jackson. He was stabbed 15 times in his home. Now, this murder occurred after the third attack on his mother-in-law. George was a suspect in this man's murder as he lived a very short distance from the gas station where George was working at the time, but they could never pin it to George. So it was just like, he has a violent criminal record. He was in the area. So this is a potential suspect? Yes. Okay. And it didn't go any farther than that. So in May 1969, George would be sentenced to six months to a Mississippi penal farm for burglary. Not any of the sexual assaults. No, burglary. He would only be there about a month, though, as he just walked away from the farm, just left, and took his wife and newborn son, George Jr., to Memphis, Tennessee, where the couple would take up odd jobs, including selling their blood to get by. Oh, well, plasma. It was in Memphis that George would go on one final killing spree after being fired from his latest job. He didn't keep jobs very long. I don't know if you picked up on that. I'm shocked by that. So before I get to these murders, I just want to give a little warning. Some of them are a little icky. Icky? Well, just some of the things that happened to the victims, but I think it's important to talk about only because it shows exactly, yes, it shows the level and exactly what those counselors and psychologists all said back when he was like 15, 16 years old before he was released. So on August 14, 1969, Roy and Bernalyn Dumas would be found by their son Michael bludgeoned to death in their apartment at 1133 South Cooper Street. Michael had arrived to find out why his parents had failed to show up for a birthday party he was hosting for his wife. Again, the next part is a bit graphic, so just be forewarned. Bernalyn was found spread eagle on her bed. She had been gagged with her wrists and ankles bound to the bedpost. She had been sodomized and her genitalia was mutilated with a pair of scissors. The mutilation occurred after her death. To add injury to insult, a lamp was placed strategically in the room to shine down a spotlight on Saliva samples taken at the crime scene would show another blood type than those of the victims, and a partial fingerprint was found on some silverware. So the police at the time had theorized that the person that had come into the residence had somehow been able to subdue this couple, and but he had eaten afterwards. Oh, with the that's why it was on the, the silverware. silverware. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Roy Dumas was a disabled World War II veteran, and Bertolin worked as a nurse at Baptist Hospital at the time of their murders. Police would come to find out through their investigation that somehow George had gained entry into their residence and again had tied them up and gagged them. Initially, it was very difficult for police to determine a cause of death at the scene due to the amount of blood. As the police commissioner would later tell reporters, quote, it was the most atrocious and revolting crime he had seen in years. 
unquote. George and his wife that evening had watched the TV coverage of the Dumas murders. I mean, so they're sitting down later that evening. Mm-hmm. They're watching the coverage of this like, oh, my gosh, who would do such a thing? He's sitting right next to you. Correct. Eleven days later, on August 25th, 80 year old Leela Jackson was found strangled in her home on North Somerville by her grandson. Leela had been strangled with a pair of nylon stockings that were found tied around her neck. Like Berna Lynn, Leela's genitals had been mutilated after her death with a butcher knife, and a lamp once again was placed to illuminate her body. Police knew they had the same killer on their hands. Mm-hmm. He left a pretty big calling card. That evening, George showed the afternoon newspaper to his wife, asking her if she remembered the old lady that he had tried to rent a room from. Leela Jackson had rented rooms out in her home in the past. So George told his wife, quote, somebody killed her just like the Dumas couple. There must be some kind of really bad nut loose in this town, unquote. That loose nut, George. On August 29th, this is just five days later, Glenda Sue Hardin, age 21, was abducted upon leaving her job at the Jackson Life Insurance Company. She was found a day later murdered in Riverside Park. She had been stabbed 14 times in her back, chest, neck, head with her hands bound behind her back with her pantyhose. Now, officials at the time would not comment if her body had been mutilated in any way. And I could find nothing that went on to say she was. Mm. I couldn't find anything to say she wasn't. This fourth killing would touch off a panic in the city as news of a killer on the loose spread. Memphis residents started to fortify their homes and the streets were pretty well deserted at night. So a task force of over 130 officers continued to work down their list of suspects. This was big. Mm-hmm. This was the largest manhunt in the city's history with a $20,000 reward. So in today's money, that's $150,000. So this was being offered for any information as to the killer's identity. Now, while police were tracking down leads on September 11th, 1969, 59-year-old Mary Pickens was returning home from work when... George Putt attacked her as she entered her apartment at 41 North Bellevue. George had tried and failed to actually get into another resident's apartment. Her name was Grace Oldman, and he was trying to get in there when Mary had come home and had opened her door, so he proceeded to kind of bum rush her into her apartment, and then he proceeded to stab her 19 times. And Mary would die from her injuries. However, before she died, Mary screamed screamed her lungs out. And this alerted the apartment janitor, Henry Curie, who ran into George as George was fleeing Mary's apartment with Mary's purse. Now, Henry, along with another neighbor, Wayne Armstrong, gave chase while another neighbor called the police, giving them details of the young man they had seen running from the apartment. Now, Wayne, as he was running out the door, had grabbed his gun and he's chasing after George and he's firing off shots. He fired off six rounds total, none of them hitting George. Because Wayne forgot his glasses back at the apartment. (laughs) Hey, but he, valiant effort, Wayne. Hey, yes. So this chase was soon joined by two officers, Glenn Noblin and Phil Scruggs, who caught up with George on Pasadena Avenue. Now, when taken into custody, he had Mary's blood all over him. There was no denying he was her killer. So before the day was over, George Putt would confess to all five homicides. He claimed that the motive for the killings was robbery and not wanting to leave any witnesses alive, fearing that that would send him back to prison. And George would show little, if any, remorse for the murders at the time, and this sentiment would still ring true 20 years later when he was interviewed on the anniversary of the killings. Now, how his wife Mary found out what her husband had done, she saw it on the evening news. Oh, my God. So on October 27, 1970, 
George was convicted of Mary Pickens' murder after he recanted his confession, but he ended up being sentenced to death. So even though he recanted, he was tried, found guilty, sentenced to death. His sentence would be changed, though, to 99 years after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the death penalty in 1972. In April 1973, George was convicted of the Dumas murders, which added another 398 years to his sentence for a total of 497 years which would make him eligible for parole on December 20th, 2432. I don't think I'll be around. <laughs> I don't think, I, I hope I won't be, my God. So while behind bars, George worked various part-time jobs for about 34 cents an hour with his most recent job as a commercial cleaner at the Turney Center. I couldn't really find out what the Turney Center is. I think it has to be some sort of prison facility because mm-hmm. I can't see them letting him out. George was 23 years old when he went on this 29-day killing spree. Under Tennessee law, George had four parole hearings since 1993. And each time George was up for parole, he indicated, yeah, I have no interest in attending or even wanting parole. So even though he had signed a waiver each time saying, yeah, that you don't really need to do this, they had to still hold it per law. Mm-hmm. And each time he was denied. So I mentioned previously the interview that took place on the 20th anniversary of the murders. George didn't seem to show any remorse for what he had done. And in George's words, this is a quote from him. I think where I'm at now is where I'm supposed to be. If it meant me understanding to get where I'm at mentally, spiritually, I'd do it all again. Unquote. George Putt died in prison on October 26, 2015 at the age of 69 at the Louis DeBerry Special Needs Facility of Natural Causes. No one claimed his body, so he received a state burial. Now, former detective Bob Corcoran when asked would describe the atmosphere in Memphis during those 29 days of George's killing spree as a period of hell. Now, George Putt is classified as a spree killer. I don't think we've covered spree killers. We've done serial killers, but we haven't really done we've spree. We've done serial killers that then spree, I believe. There is a difference. There is a slight difference between mm-hmm. spree and serial. So both seem to fit the dictionary definition of a person who kills more than one victim in more than one location. The difference seems to lie in the amount of time it takes place between the killing. So there's not a long cooling off period between murders when dealing with a spree killer, whereas a serial killer can go weeks, months, and in in some cases, years between killings. So a more recent example of a spree killer would be the D.C. sniper killings that took place in 2002, where 10 people were killed over a 23-day period. I remember seeing that on the news and being a kid and being like, what is a sniper? Right. What is going on? Yeah. Like, how crazy. I remember that. Like, my mom would be like, where are you driving? Where are you going? Mm. I'm like, well, I mean, really, that I remember around. And D.C.'s busy. There's a lot of traffic. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I do remember those killings. And I think it was a guy and a young kid. Like the kid with him that was killing too wasn't wasn't an adult. I want to say 15, 16, 17, maybe 17. So that is spree killer George Putt from Memphis, Tennessee. Good case, Trish. Any uh, criminal discourse life tips? Hmm. I would say this. Treat your children nicely. Okay. Yeah, you. I would do that. Like, yeah. don't be George's parents. Yeah. Yeah. To those maybe administrators out there who have people in uh, juvenile or other detention centers that have been given the terminology sociopath, maybe don't just release them. You might want to put things in place. Yeah. To make sure they can. Yeah. Transition back into society. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. We greatly appreciate it. If you like what you've heard, 
then we would only ask that you leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. And if you leave us a five star, we'd appreciate it even more. As always, we want you to stay safe out there, but we also need to be kind to one another. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.